Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of A Pretty Normal Podcast. Can't believe we actually found 10 guests to interview so far, but we are still going strong. So if this is your first time listening, A Pretty Normal Podcast is a show that highlights interesting people and tries to reimagine what society considers normal. This week's guest is a licensed professional counselor, a yoga instructor, and the co-host of the Jeremy Jude Podcast, a podcast talking about mental health. Mental health is something that we really, really wanted to dive into on this show, and we're so happy that we found somebody that's licensed and knows what they're talking about when it comes to mental health. Just a quick reminder to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, all that. Subscribe to the show and get alerted as soon as a new episode drops every week on Sundays. Always have really cool guests. And if you like what you hear, go check out some of the old episodes. You definitely will not regret it. We have so many cool guests, and I'm so fortunate to be able to speak to all of these people about things that they're passionate about. Go like us on Facebook and Instagram, and without further ado, this is A Pretty Normal Podcast, and I'm your host, Xavier Diaz. Let's get into it. You're listening to A Pretty Normal Podcast, a show that highlights the fascinating stories and thought-provoking moments that make up our lives. My name's Xavier Diaz, and I want to hear your story. Today, we are speaking with Larissa Rezimensky. You are a licensed professional counselor, a podcast host, and a yoga mom. Would you say that is correct? That is correct. Although my daughter is 19 now, so. Still, still. You're always going to be a mom. That doesn't. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you about uh, today's topic is going to be mental health because I came across your podcast, the Jeremy Jude podcast, which you are a co-host of. And I loved it. I started listening to it. I thought this is great. I'm so glad that people are taking the time to speak about mental health. I'm so glad that it's not as stigmatized as it used to be. And I wanted to ask, how did you become a co-host of the Jeremy Jude podcast? Well, funny story. Um, I literally just got on Instagram maybe a few months back. And um, I think Jeremy and I became friends on there. And then I learned about this podcast and I said, oh, well, and he actually was just a town over, so we lived um, very close. And I asked him if he wanted a co-host because I'm a counselor myself, and he said, "Sure, I would. You know, I would love that." Um, so I hung out with him and his other co-hosts, and we did a couple episodes on a Sunday. And then he said that if I was interested, I could also, you know, stay on permanently. And I was like, sure, that would be amazing. That's awesome. So it was just, you found him, you enjoyed what he did, and then you went over, he enjoyed obviously what you do, and then you guys linked up that way to speak about mental health. His podcast was always talking about mental health? Yes. So he was um, doing the mental health podcast before I even came along, and it just kind of was a perfect fit for both of us. Being a licensed professional counselor, that's a great insight to have and a great perspective to have on the show. How did you become counselor? Is this something you always wanted to do or how long have you been doing it for? Yes, good question. Um, 
So I've been a counselor for about 20, 20 plus years. And initially I was driven to become a doctor, but I really liked that the mental health field is so gray. There's no black or white in the mental health area where I felt like medicine kind of is black and white or a little more so anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that, you know, mental health just fascinated me and it was so interesting. And so that's why I, you know, studied psychology and counseling. I went to ASU to study counseling and graduated back in 2001. Okay, and I see you focus mainly on children and teenagers, adolescents? Yeah, so that's kind of been my main... I work with adults as well as a college instructor, but mostly I've worked with children and teenagers, and I've worked a lot in the school systems as well. And you prefer working with that age group more? I enjoy working with all ages. For a while, like I really enjoyed working with teenagers. I thought it was kind of that point in life where you're trying to figure things out. Oh, um, yeah. You need that assistance. You need yes, that guidance. You need it. And you need it. And I think it worked out well because when I was a high school counselor, I was, gosh, in my 20s and 30s. So even though I was an adult, I was still sort of hip. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure you're still hip. <laughs> I'm still hip. I see the um, Instagram. You're still hip. <laughs> you know, they felt comfortable talking to me, but I also could be the adult figure while also being approachable at the same time. Yeah, and kudos to you, because that's a hard age. Like, I remember, teen. I'm only 26, so it's not that long ago. <laughs> I say I remember, and I'm like, Jesus, God, like, I sound so old. Teenage years are hard. You just, you're coming into the world, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to also um, avoid peer pressure, trying to find yourself while also trying to fit in somehow it's such a confusing age and i you know i really commend you for that i think that what you do is great and i'm glad that more teenagers and more people more young people are going to seek out help are you, yes. you work now in a, a college correct yes i primarily teach at the college level um so i'm teaching for a few different universities um and then i also do online counseling as well so i have an appointment after this, but I do either telephone counseling or video counseling online as well. Hmm. And how do you find that video, like doing it online, is that better? Do you find it less easy to connect with the person? Because I'm sure that's very new, this online counseling. But and I think it's going to become more prominent as uh, we keep going. Some people are more comfortable expressing themselves online when they don't have to be there, like in the physical presence of somebody. Do you think that it's beneficial to do it online? I definitely think it's beneficial to have online counseling because people find it much more accessible. You know, obviously there's a place for in-person counseling as well. Especially nowadays, people are very tech savvy and people want the convenience as well. So I feel like they are more comfortable staying home and, you know, they can just and they have the option if they want telephone with no face to face or if they want a video. To choose, they get to choose what day, what time, and they just either they can do it on their their telephone or on their computer, and it's just easily accessible. And I think it it targets those people that may not necessarily walk into a counseling office, or even people that are maybe in further away areas as well. Is it a little more affordable? Because I know therapy can get expensive if your insurance doesn't cover it. True. I feel like honestly, I think it might be about the same. Okay. Yeah, I think that's something as we move forward, they should definitely start including that in more insurance plans because it's something everybody should have access to. Yeah, and actually the company that I work for is starting to contract with insurance companies. 
So we are getting clients through insurance companies now who come online. Awesome. That's so great. And I wanted to ask you also about your other passion, which is yoga. I see you're very active in the yoga community. You post a lot about it. How did you get into yoga? Gosh, good question. So I was at a gym and I would just kind of work out, take different classes. And I started getting more into the yoga idea. I was just instantly obsessed. I remember one of the first classes I took when we went into Shavasana. For those of you that don't know, Shavasana is the end of class where you just kind of lay there quietly. And I noticed that my brain just completely calmed itself. Mm -hmm. I was struggling with that. So it was the first time where I was like, wow, my brain just kind of went blank like no thoughts, like just kind of completely calm. And that's when I just noticed that it has so many benefits and it helped me through so many hard times. Then I became a yoga teacher after that. So I've been teaching about about a little over four years now I've been a yoga teacher. And how do you find that yoga mixes with mental health? Like, do you find that people that do do yoga, they have a better sense of um, themselves and that their mental health is a little better than people that may not do exercise in yoga? Yoga has so many components. So I think people think yoga is stretching or, you know, people who don't know yoga think yoga is stretching or physical activity. But in reality, yoga encompasses so much more. So Mm -hmm. um, it involves um, an eight limb philosophy. So it has to do with Uh, even like moral and ethics code, meditation, breathing. There's so many more components besides just stretching and exercise. Yeah, it's very spiritual. Uh And would you consider yourself more spiritual than you are religious? Yes, definitely. I don't have any religious affiliations. I'm definitely more of a like agnostic spiritual. Were you somebody that grew up religious because your family was religious? You know, my my family was somewhat religious, so I did go to church on Sundays. I never really got into it, so I never really, I, I questioned a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's something that we're seeing a lot with millennials. Yeah. They're gearing more towards spirituality than religion. Why do you think that is? Well, for me personally, I, I think I just kind of have this logical brain where I question so much. I question so many aspects of religion Mm -hmm. that I don't really, I guess you could say, buy into it or believe in it. You know, everybody has their own personal beliefs for sure, but I believe more into my own soul, my own spirituality. Yeah, and what makes you believe into that? Because I had somebody on who was telling me about chakras and about her spirituality. (laughs) And so what is it about this that makes you believe this, but not religion? I would say maybe more what I've observed and what I've felt through my yoga practice. Mm -hmm. And then I think when it comes down to it, we are, you know, we're not the physical body. Like we are a physical body. And I think sometimes society is so focused on the physical body and what we observe and what we see. But we have to take it a little bit deeper into our own you know true essence our true nature what our what our soul entails as opposed to the physical yeah i think it comes down to really whatever helps you and whatever you find inner peace with so if if organized religion is something that brings you peace and you really believe in it then by all means if spirituality is something that has helped you in your life then by all means believe in that yes and i think it's just you know a personal thing everybody has their own 
belief system, whatever that might be. And whatever belief system they have is benefiting them. And, and that's great. And I had it explained to me that sometimes religion, organized religion feels like it's separating people. It's dividing people. Whereas spirituality and all of this makes us feel like we're all one and we all have one common thing that brings us together. Yeah, I mean, it, there's this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter what your belief system is or what path you're taking. We are all one in essence. Um, so we're all connected as in this human experience. Mm -hmm. Religion could potentially be dividing. Almost if you're not believing in our system, then you're kind of an outsider. Even though we're accepting of you, you're kind of an outsider. Yeah, definitely. So then going back to mental illness and mental health, is mental illness a term that you're okay with? Because sometimes when I hear mental illness, I'm like, what do you mean? Like this person is ill, like this is not an illness. This is how they, this is who they are. I don't know if the word illness for sure, like implies that it can be cured. Mm -hmm. Is it a term that you're okay with? I guess, you know, the term that is more commonly used is mental disorder. I don't know if that's any better or worse. Mm -hmm. That's the technical term per se. But, you know, it's interesting because you bring up this idea of mental illness. And I, you know, in, in my research, I've found that, you know, we call it mental illness, but sometimes these aspects of so-called mental disorders can actually have positive aspects. And we always tend to focus on what's wrong with the person, but what what is amazing about that person, right? You know, they say that some of the greatest poets, the greatest artists had bipolar disorder. And maybe it is that fluctuation in the brain that brings them this mass amount of creativity. Yeah, I've always found that like a lot of my best creative work has come in low points in my life where I'm sad or I'm just questioning life and questioning certain things of society. And I think that's true for a lot of artists, a lot of musicians that when they're sad, they come out with their greatest work. But right now in the news, we've been talking a lot about mass shootings. And it seems that no matter how much time passes, mental health is something that is always thrown in there. They say, oh, it's not guns. It's we have a mental health problem in the United States. So then people that do have these mental disorders, they kind of get lumped into this group where now when you talk about, oh, mental illness, they're thrown in there. And then the word illness in itself sometimes has a negative connotation for me because it's like it's something that you that either can't be cured like you're ill you're not you're not well the you stigmatized too yeah, yeah there's a lot exactly. of stigma with it. it makes you yeah. it makes you not want to come out and say anything because you're like everybody's talking about mental illness in a bad way like why would i want to say that i'm mentally ill do you think the u.s does have a mental illness problem without getting too political or anything do you think that this is something that, ha that holds some weight in the conversation when people talk about these mass shootings? Yes, I definitely think that in the United States, we do have a mental illness problem. Um, one of the themes that I'm seeing with a lot of the mass shootings is that these people weren't necessarily accepted during their school years. That's kind of a common theme that I'm seeing with a lot of the shooters. I feel like schools should, you know, especially elementary schools, middle schools, high, high schools, should be finding ways of of children accepting other children because I feel like there is a lot of, you know, a lot of cliques within the schools, a lot of misunderstanding about differences. And there's there's a lot of children that aren't fully accepted, that are bullied, made fun of. We're not helping children, you know, see that differences are okay and that 
we're not all the same, but you know, be friends with different people, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you think there's like an appropriate age where kids can start going to therapy? Do you think that there's any age that's too young to be putting them in therapy? Oh, never. I think any age is appropriate. And it's depending on the, the age of the person, it'll, the, the types of activities would be different. So for a younger child, there would be more play initiated. So I feel like even for a young child, they wouldn't even necessarily realize that they're at therapy per se, because they see it more as like playtime, like a sand tray therapy or art therapy or play therapy. But they don't necessarily see it as therapy, you know? No. And then, so how do you feel about when they over-medicate children? Like, let's say they believe that a child has uh, ADHD and they have them on certain medications. Do you agree with that? Because sometimes I'm like, how young can they be giving these kids medication? Because if a kid is just running around and they have a lot of energy and they're mm -hmm. super playful, should you be putting them on medication and automatically going to they have ADHD or can't you just say you know it's a kid they they're just a kid with a lot of energy that's a great question I really think that they should look at the alternatives first so I think that um, you know even the idea of giving kids more recess breaks you know some children for example do better concentrating if they have something to play with in their hands or if they have like a bouncy ball to sit on or have little break times so I'd rather see more interventions, looking at what can we do differently in this child's life. Um, maybe it is breathing, exercises, meditation, even yoga, more recess breaks, nutrition. I'm a big you know, proponent of nutrition. Feeding these children hot dogs and potato chips. Can we look at their diets, look at their activities and try to treat things that way first? And of course, medicine could be you know, a last resort, but how can we treat the person more holistically and naturally? How do you feel about Western medicines versus some more holistic approaches? I am a huge proponent of holistic and natural approaches. There's always the time and place where medicine comes into play, you know, more um, pharmaceuticals. Definitely, you know, some people are in need of pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. I would rather see more people eating nutritiously, exercising, you know, yoga. Even outdoors. I mean, how many people spend time outdoors? Yep, we work so much. 40 hours a week is most likely mm -hmm. in an office. Yes. Yeah, it's people definitely and the, go outside more. And the habits, you know, sometimes people have, you know, bad habits, smoking, drinking, you know, junk mm -hmm. food, like that. So how can we change that in society? I think that would resolve a lot of issues. How would you know if a therapist is right for you and not to go searching another therapist? You know, obviously you want to do a little research first to find out what they're, you know, are they licensed, first of all? What is their experience? Where did they go to school? You know, the basic questions. Those are important to ask to begin with. Also, what their specialty areas are. And from there, you know, once you kind of figure out their book smarts and their licensure, all that good stuff, from there, it's the relationship. Just like we find, you know, certain people are more likely to be our friends because we kind of vibe with different people. Do you vibe with your therapist? So do you feel comfortable? Do you feel cut off? Do you feel like this is a person that you feel comfortable talking to? So the person could be the wisest counselor in the entire world, 
But if you don't feel comfortable with that person, the relationship is really key. Yeah. So give it a session or two, and if you don't feel comfortable with the person, you have to vibe with that person. And if you if you don't feel like you're vibing, then then it might be time to look for a different counselor. And that could be nothing against them. It's just every individual is so different that you know we vibe with people in different ways. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you break up with your therapist? in a way that you know doesn't make them feel personally hurt and is a way that where you can move on and you can say you know this wasn't right for me and let's say for somebody who has been going to a therapist for a long time and then suddenly feels like they no longer are somebody that they need so i think it's the same as breaking up in a relationship or breaking up with your hairstylist right honesty is probably the best policy but in my industry there's a lot of the kind of ghosting, I guess you could say. We call it ghosting, right? In relationships, but there's nothing. Yep, yep. I also work with student counselors who are in um, their master's program working um, towards their master's degree. So it's their first experience. And sometimes their clients just disappear on them. They don't call, they don't show up. So in a way it's kind of like ghosting, which isn't maybe the most mature way. So at least to at least to communicate something so that, you know, a lot of times my students are sitting there kind of sad because their client never even called them to show up. You know, they, they basically no showed. Um, so at least to say, this isn't the right time or I don't have, to, you know, whatever it might be, but at least to communicate and not just be a flake and not show up. What is the reason why people ghost? I mean, maybe it has to do with the, influence of social media and not having the the face-to-face -face as much mm -hmm. it's easier to kind of just ignore the situation rather than to be upfront and honest about it so social media i think is a double-edged sword where now because of it so many people can go online they can connect in groups with other people that share the same mental health problems as them they can you know talk about their experiences get advice online but then in a another sense we're seeing in the news that you know millennials face like record levels of anxiety of depression all this other things do you think that social media is a good or a bad thing when it comes to mental health well when it comes to mental health i think that you know just any tool we have to use it in the proper manner so is it beneficial to us okay. in a proper manner so for example you and i are talking right now because of social media, we wouldn't know each other. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be on the Jeremy Jude podcast talking about mental health either if I hadn't connected with Jeremy via Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there is that connection, but are we using it in a healthy manner? And then also, are we seeing people face to face? So I did see those kind of statistics, those news articles as well. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, they're saying, um, the younger generations, some of them don't even have friends, maybe one friend. Is it a substitution for having face-to-face -face interactions? And do they, you know, like we were talking about ghosting, are they still able to have those, you know, in-depth conversations? This idea that people are at restaurants eating dinner and they're on their cell phones, but they're not talking because like, hey, I'm just going to play on my cell phone. I'm a millennial, and if I don't know the exact years of what is considered a millennial anymore. I think it's like 89 or something through something. But I find that being 26 right now, this is a time period where 
maybe two, three years ago, I was hanging out with my friends every weekend. Sometimes during weekdays after work, we'd meet up, we'd hang out. And now that I'm 26, uh, I recently got married. I got married a year ago. And then my friends are all in pretty serious relationships, either engaged or just with somebody for a long time. I'm finding that at this point in my life, I see my friends way less, like way, way less than I used to. And sometimes I get sad about it. Sometimes I get really upset. I'm like, damn, I like I used to have such good times. We used to hang out all the time. Whereas now, like there will be months where we don't see each other. And for people my age that are going through this, that are like getting to this point in life where you're no longer around those people that you're so used to being around all the time. You're used to talking to them all the time. You're used to having like a network of people that understand you and that you have a good time with. And now let's say you're somebody who's single and all your friends are in serious relationships. You no longer see them. I could totally see how people feel real anxious and depressed about this stuff just around this time period of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I've found that over my lifespan, I've had to change my friendship group so much depending on what's going on in my life. Am I, am I single? Am I married? Am I raising a young child? Am I, you know, empty nester? Where am I in my life? And it's been hard because sometimes those transitions like, okay, now I'm single, but who do I talk to? Because everybody was married. Um, what do I do on a Saturday night? Right? Uh -huh. I feel like as a teenager in high school, it might might be a little easier because everybody's on the same trajectory. As you get older, things are just changing so often. And it, it's a hard thing to go through because, you know, you change places of employment and then those friends that you used to have at your old job, you start losing touch with. And then you're finding, you're having to find new friends again. So it's this ever evolving, ever changing. And, and just to have those, you know, a few good friends, it takes work. And I feel like it takes scheduling too. Like you said, everybody is so busy. You know, you said we, we work 40 hours, but a lot of people are taking their work home with them because, because of technology. So nowadays, you know, you're on your email, you're working from home on the weekends, all this other stuff that occupies your time. You really have to set time with your friends. Like, hey, let's nail down a day and a time for us to go to lunch. Yeah, and I've been fortunate enough where my best friends, I've known them since first grade, like since we were six years old. So we've known Aww. each other for like two decades. Yeah, we've been great friends for a long time, but this is a period where I see them way less. And it was just a big shock to me at first from going to hanging out every weekend with them and just to not seeing them for months on end. What do you recommend for these moments in life where people are transitioning and changing? How do you go about this in a in a positive way that's not detrimental to your own mental health? Yes, you know, definitely hard, um, you know, especially if somebody moves geographically to a new place and they have no friends. Um, but look into activities, you know, whether it's joining a gym or, you know, meetup groups or hobbies, um, find ways to get out and about to meet people. And again, schedule time with those people. So um, maybe it's a, a Skype call with your best friends. Mm -hmm. uh, you're away, but find time to communicate. Um, go back home and see your friends. Uh, find ways to interact and, and meet new friends. I, I think sharing hobbies is a big part of it as well. Mm -hmm. when, you know, when two people are into the same kind of thing, they're more likely to hang out together. And what do you recommend for people who find themselves very dependent on someone else? 
how do they find time for themselves? How do they take a step back and, you know, be happy with themselves as opposed to being so dependent on someone else for their happiness? That's a really good um, question. And actually, we had a little podcast episode. It was our darkest times in life. And um, Jeremy kind of shared about how... I actually listened to that one. Listen to that one? Yeah. Yeah, he spent a lot of time taking walks and in the woods. Uh But we talked about finding relationships with yourself because, you know, uh, people come and go. Um, and really, you know, especially going back to what is your true essence, what is your soul, what is your relationship like with yourself? So can you go for a walk with yourself and be content with that? Can you go to a restaurant, have dinner and be content with that? What can you do to build a relationship with yourself? Yeah, I think it's something that's very important. And I don't know, was it stressed a lot back then to find that time for yourself? Or is that something that we're focusing more on now? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Maybe it is more more of a recent thing. With- right, because when I think of like, when I think of um, relationships in the past, it was very family oriented, um, you know, be with your family, um, wife at home, raising the children, husband comes mm-hmm. home, spend time on the weekends together. But now I think like we're understanding that we do need times where we just, you know, go to the movies by yourself or go do something by yourself. Go take a walk. Don't be so, so dependent on somebody where you can't even function when like they leave you. Exactly. Yeah. You got to have that strong foundation relationship with yourself first because relationships come and go. You don't know what's going to happen. Everything invested in the relationship and to find your happiness in just that relationship um, may not, it's not going to end well. No, no. And it's, yeah, it's going to, it's like not preparing for the fall. It's kind of not even having like any type of parachute or anything, just I'm free floating and like, I feel so good. I'm in love, I'm so high. And then once you fall, it's like, oh shit, I didn't have a parachute. I didn't have anything like I'm on Uh my own and I've never been, I've never done this before. Yeah, exactly right. As a licensed professional counselor. Hey, we're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, we're gonna dive deeper into mental health with Larissa. If you like what you've heard so far, then go check out some of the older episodes and subscribe. Like us on Facebook and Instagram to always stay alerted with new things happening with the show. So don't go too far because mental health is a very, very interesting topic and we got plenty more to talk about. This is a Pretty Normal Podcast and my name is Xavier Diaz. As a licensed professional counselor, do you find that family members friends people in your life they come to you for advice all the time or the on the opposite end do you find that people say stop overanalyzing me do they like get defensive and like when you give them advice like oh well you're just because you're a counselor you're just overanalyzing me you're just diagnosing me like do you find that this is um something in your life that you've had to deal with i would say it has more to do with people coming to me for advice because i make you know maybe because being the counselor that i am i'm more approachable and i know i know the questions to ask but i don't give advice and that's probably the one thing that we learn in counselor training is that we never give advice Mm -hmm. I mean, there's certain things that we might give advice on that are more basic, but in essence, we help the client come to their own decisions. 
So for example, if a client came in and they didn't know like, oh, should I get divorced or shouldn't I? Not Nothing that I would you know, suggest or give advice for, but it, it's something that I would help them explore and, and kind of sort out all of their feelings. And that would be ultimately their decision to make. Yeah. Do you find that there are a lot of people that just come looking for the answer? Like they, they don't want a therapist. They just want somebody to make the decision for them. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of clients like that where they just want to be kind of told what to do. And that's not, you know, again, going back to personal relationship with yourself, that's not not really healthy to take the advice of somebody else because ultimately you want that that strength and that wisdom to be able to come to your own and, and be comfortable and happy with those decisions. What is that first session like? Do you find that people are very, you know, still closed in where they don't want to talk? Like, how do you get somebody to to speak and start like spilling out their their feelings? You know, especially what I've experienced doing the telephone and video counseling that I do. Most of them are really wanting the counseling. Most of them have had counseling before, so they know what it entails. And they're at this point in their life where it's kind of like panic or anxiety. And so they, they tend, in my experience, they tend to tell you a lot in the first session. So they're very open. And then it, usually what I like to do too is to prioritize what they are facing, what, what problems they have going on. So typically we'll prioritize a first, second, third kind of priority concerns. From there, we set goals. So those would be smart, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely goals in association with their main concern or main presenting issues. How does somebody know where this is not a good therapy session, I should go look for something else? Like what are some signs or things that the therapist might be doing that would constituting like not a good uh, session. Pretty much always the client and the counselor are going to have different values, different views. So the counselor has to understand things from the client's point of view. Uh, for example, are they from a culture that is collectivistic or individualistic, right? So are they respecting your points of view, um, even your interpretation of the event? So. The client may have a different interpretation um, based upon their their cultural worldview. And does the counselor take that into account? All, all of the values, ethics, morals, religion, etc., of the client. Do you ever feel that you hear a lot of people that say, oh, therapy doesn't work. Like, it's just, why would I pay money for somebody to go just listen to me? Oh, good question. And, and again, that comes back to everybody kind of being their own person, right? Um, so for me personally, I kind of feel like I have the relationship with myself where I'm, you know, unless something major came up, but I feel like for me, I'm able to, especially with my counseling background and knowledge, I kind of work out my own problem. Like I kind of, I guess you could say I therapize myself, uh -huh. but everybody's different. So is it, you know, maybe the person just wants to therapize themselves or read self-help books or go to yoga class or do whatever it takes. Um, so I think it comes back to each individual's preference. I've been to therapy a few times and it was definitely something that at that time in my life when I was, when I, whatever I was going through, 
I definitely needed to speak to somebody that wasn't a friend, somebody that wasn't family, somebody that could just be neutral and somebody who <laughs> would just listen to me. Do you think that going to your friends for as a therapist is something that people do and they shouldn't do? I think it's actually a good thing that, you know, because a lot of times people who end up in the therapy office don't necessarily have those close friends to talk to. So sometimes they come to therapy because they don't have anyone to necessarily share the information with, especially in an abductive manner. But I do think you have to pick and choose the friends that you talk to carefully um, because some friends are good sounding boards, right? And some, yeah. um, some might be more judgmental. So what is it that you're looking for? And then how do your friends treat you when you talk to them? Because, you know, every friend's a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. There are definitely some friends where I'm like, you are, well, I mean, it used to be like this, like you are my party friend. Like I like going out with you. I like partying with you, but I don't really go to you for advice, which then makes me think like, are you actually a good friend? Because if all I can do is party with you and I can't actually go to you when my, when I'm in like my low points in life, like how good of a friend are you? Yeah, it's totally true because you have to have a two-sided relationship, the, the give and take. And there has to be good times, bad times. Um, and that's what a true friend is. Definitely. Do you think that there are more people who are self-diagnosing themselves who are before they even go to therapy, before they go to anyone, they just say, you know, I have anxiety, I have depression. Like, this is why I am the way I am. You know, people do. And people could sometimes know exactly what their diagnosis is. So if they have some, you know, introspection and they know what their symptoms are, they could very well kind of see that there is an issue. And I think that that is the first step to realization to know, hey, I have a problem. I get really depressed or, hey, I get really anxious from time to time. And I think that it, that's actually a good thing because then they can go get the help that they need. Yeah, definitely. I think it's good to be able to identify certain things in yourself. Let's say you have a friend. What is the, how would you know if they're just acting, you know, in a bad mood, they're just moody that day, or they are showing signs of, you know, some type of mental health disorder? I think it depends on, you know, how, how long it's been going on and what the, the underlying issues are. So if they are facing some difficult situations and they're upset or depressed, that would be totally normal. Um, whereas if the problem is ongoing or there's really no reason why they're, they're feeling that way, then it could be a problem. Yeah. So what would be the difference between actual depression and just being, you know, sad because of something happening? Yeah. So actual depression would be something that is more ongoing when somebody starts to really lose interest in fun activities or, um, hobbies, uh, work. You know, we talk about in um, psychology, the different D's of diagnosis. So how distressed are they? The other D is dysfunction. So is it affecting their uh, going to work, their eating habits, etc. And deviance is how far away from the norm it is. How depressed are they in, in actuality? So is it beyond just the the blues or is it something a little bit more extreme and are they changing habits is it affecting their sleep their eating 
so this leads me to a point where I went on Reddit. I found people that were looking for advice and I wanted to read them to you and your perspective on how you would change the situation or what you would do differently. So, interesting. Yep. The first one is my girlfriend is accusing me of stonewalling her because in the middle of a heated argument, I decided and told her that I needed space. I turned off my phone for less than an hour and she wouldn't stop telling me how it was abusive and she can no longer trust me. I don't think this is unreasonable to want an hour or even less than an hour to myself to collect my thoughts and try and calm down before I say things that I would regret. But the girlfriend didn't see it this way. What do you think? How do you think they could have done this differently where it wouldn't have been so such an explosive confrontation? Yes, well, I, I would say that communication is certainly key. Um, so when we when we set up boundaries or, you know, say whether it's taking an hour hour off, right? Why? So what are kind of his, so if he could explain the reasons for it, like um, kind of, I need to take this break because I feel like I need to calm down. Otherwise my reaction might not be good and I need to go for a walk. I need to take a breather before I react because I'd rather think about things and, and react in a calm manner. So I think that him explaining the reasoning, you know, they also say that we should have those conversations when things are calm. So the at the point that the girlfriend is so upset and so angry, it's almost not even the time to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So we talk about these things when, you know, we're having lunch and everything's lovely. That's when we talk about it, not when things are all fired up because usually it doesn't have a good ending then. The next post I wanted to read to you is something I wanted to get into, which is the nature versus nurture side of mental health and how much of it is genetic versus not genetic. So someone said, uh, I'm beginning to think that I might just be another family cook, cook. I don't know how to pronounce that. I guess like, okay. yeah. So for some background, uh, mental health issues runs on my dad's side of the family. My dad is basically bipolar and my grandmother has been hospitalized for depression multiple times throughout her life. When she was raising her children, she would have emotional breaks and smash plates. Well, fast forward till about three months ago, I started to feel very depressed. And despite seeing a psychiatrist and therapist, and taking medication, it's only gotten worse. I'm 19, by the way. How much of it do you think is, you know, genetics versus not? Yeah, there is a strong genetic component to almost most mental health disorders. Not every mental health disorder, but most of them, you know, definitely depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, they all have a genetic component. It doesn't mean that we automatically get the disorder, but we are more the more relatives that we have with disorders, the more prone we are to having those disorders. So it's important to know your family history because that could mean you're, you're more prone to it. And I think that is knowledge that is truly important because then you could try to counteract it. Um, you can counteract it you know, through therapy, through um, exercise, nutrition, relationship with yourself. Like we said, there comes a time where medication might be needed. For the 19 year old that you're talking about, he didn't seem to find out what it was that he, he needs. And I feel like it's different for every person. So it could be, you know, spirituality, it could be religion, it could be some exercise program, it could be nutritional allergies. I mean, what is it that is affecting him and how can he find the right path? Maybe it's the wrong medication, right? Mm -hmm. 
give medications a certain amount of time, but there's no there's no hard science behind psychiatric medications, which is a very difficult concept because the, the psychiatrist doesn't necessarily know how that person's going to react to the medication. And it takes weeks for the medications to truly kick in, giving the medication, you know, at least a few weeks to kick in to see if it's working. And sometimes people have to try several different medications to get to the right the right one. Does that happen often where you get misdiagnosed and or they give you something that you shouldn't be on? I would say that's pretty common. It happens quite often because psychology is not a black and white science. You know, in medicine, we could give a blood test and say, oh, hey, you have high cholesterol, you have diabetes. But in psychology, besides paper and pencil tests, um, interviews, there's really no way to find out exactly what's going on. And then also the medications that are provided are, are very complex because they're affecting neurotransmitters in the brain. So it's not an exact science. It, it's becoming more of a science, but it's still not an exact science at this point. So there's, I feel like there's a lot of experimentation where it's like, oh, let's give you this dose. Okay, well, let's give you a stronger dose. Okay, that's not working. Let's give you a different medication. And so there's a lot of experimentation. And I wouldn't want to be in that position where I'm, it feels like you're like a, a guinea pig almost, where it's like, let's see what finally works on you. And then from there, we might be able to prescribe other people's what worked. But like going through that, it's got to take a toll on your mental health, right? Going through things that aren't working and trying to figure out what does work and just going through whatever side effects might come from it. Yeah, and, and there are major side effects, so it could affect so many different things. It could cause weight gain, um, loss, of, loss of libido, um, becoming tired or becoming super happy. Um, so there's all these side effects of the drugs, but they never truly know until you give it a few weeks, which is the other problem too, is giving it a few weeks because you have to religiously take the pill every day to see even what's going to happen. So you can't, you can't stop it. You have to just keep taking it. Um, so some med medications can make things worse. They could be tired and exhausted or overly energetic where they can't sleep. So it affects people in different manners and it can be very dangerous. So a lot of times you probably hear the commercials on TV where it says a side effect is suicidal ideation, right? So taking these medications could potentially make somebody suicidal. Quick question. What's uh, what's the deal with bunnies? What's uh, Bunny. with bunnies in your life? Gosh. <laughs> yeah, so I do have a pet bunny and I feel like that's kind of like the animal that kind of vibes with my personality best because my bunny is super independent, super sweet, super just kind of chill and cool and funny. Um, and I'm allergic to dogs and cats, so it's kind of like the animal that I could have. They don't make noises, which is nice, like a dog barks and and they're vegetarian. They eat they eat lettuce and I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> are, they, uh, are they easy to clean? Do they smell? Do they ever get yeah, No. So mine is potty trained. And so uh, my bunny just hops around the entire house, but is potty trained. So I just have to, you know, clean the little cage area and that's it. So is it just your bunny that you love or is it all bunnies? Because I feel like I've I seen some bunnies. of your posts and yeah, you talk a lot about bunnies. <laughs> I love bunnies, yeah. So I even, like almost every morning, there's usually a bunny in my backyard too. Let all the listeners know where they can um, find you, where they can 
reach out to you if they have any questions and on what social media handles you're on. Okay, yeah, so Instagram is Larissa R6, L-A-R-I-S-S-A-R, number six. And um, the podcast I'm on is The Jeremy Jude, J-U-D-E podcast. And um, he also has an Insta handle, The Jeremy Jude. And we are on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. And it's yep. free to listen. And it's great. I listened to a bunch of episodes and it's great. I, I love it. The last episode that I was listening through was the sex addiction one, which oh, just, yeah. quick question. So porn addiction yes. is not considered a real disorder? No. So they do not have any, there's nothing in the DSM-5 manual that uh, pertains to an addiction of sex, whether porn or sex addiction. Hmm. Well, instead of, what was that? It's very questionable. So it's kind of an unofficial diagnosis. Gotcha. Well, instead of diving more into that, I'm going to let listeners go over to the Jeremy Jude podcast to hear more about that, because I'm sure you guys covered it very, very well. I love the, the topic you guys talk about, and I love the dynamic you guys have. It's, it's great. Thank you so much. It's so great to be on your podcast today, and I look forward to hearing more episodes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Larissa. Have a great yeah. day. And you as well. Care. Bye. As always, thank you to our guests for coming on the show. We love talking to new people. We love diving into these subjects that they're passionate about. Thank you to everyone who listened to the show. Thank you to everyone who subscribed. Please, please, please tell your friends about it. Tell your family. Tell everyone. Post it. Word of mouth is still the strongest way to get the show around. If you haven't already, go like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, send us a message. We're always willing to talk to anybody. We're always putting up surveys, trying to interact with the community. We love talking to people. Tune in next week when we have a new guest on and we dive into another interesting subject and we try and reimagine what society considers normal. My name is Xavier Diaz and this is A Pretty Normal Podcast.